0: Wonderful singing tonight. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you would. In your Bibles. I'm so glad that our God has washed us white as snow. And that is how he sees us. He sees us washed in the blood of the Lamb, white as snow. And uh, he see, when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness, the righteousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing if we're honest at all about who we are and uh, who we used to be. It's wonderful to be, have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Um, I've asked you to turn to chapter 3. You might look back to chapter 2 for just a moment. In the first few verses of chapter 2, Paul is uh, making mention of a few things. He says, if there be therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 2, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if he's ever consoled you, if any comfort of love, if you've ever been comforted by his love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if you know that the Spirit of God living within you is is working in you, helping you, aiding you, teaching you, guiding you, convicting, directing, all of these things that you and I desperately need on a daily basis. If any vows and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. So if you're a born-again child of God and God is working in your life, Paul says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So he wants there to be unity uh, throughout this congregation, a like-mindedness. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. So we're to look around the congregation, consider one another, and we're to consider one another to be more important than ourselves to consider what one another thinks, and maybe how they live, than how we think, even. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then he tells us, he's talked about this unity, this like-mindedness that he wants us to have, a selflessness, he's already alluded to that, but now he's going to tell us exactly how he wants us to think, beginning in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And uh, we'll stop. We could go on. We're going to stop there and go to chapter 3. But in light of what we just read in chapter 2, of being selfless, being sacrificial, um, being being humble, humbling ourselves. Now he comes to chapter 3, and in light of chapter 2, he starts chapter 3 after saying, let this mind be in you in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he begins it by saying, finally. And he still has a ways to go. I've heard pastors joke before about uh, these sort of things. Uh, One more thought, and we'll be done. And then it's like 30 minutes more. You know, it's one big thought. And uh, here it was even inspired. Finally, Spirit of God led him to write it. But he, So he said, let this mind be in you. But now he, there's something else Paul wants the church to know. Um, finally, there's something else. Besides that, there's still something you need to know. He wants to tell the church of Philippi this. And so in chapter 3, he gives the church some direction for their everyday lives. In light of this like-mindedness, in light of this humility that we're supposed to have in our lives, and following the Lord Jesus Christ and being selfless, there's, there's something you need to apply in your life, and that is this. Our daily lives should include rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our daily lives should include rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one thing, and tonight we are going to remember what Christ has done for us, right? We're going to remember how his body was broken, uh, that is, the flesh was broken, his his blood was spilled for you and for me, for our salvation. But it's good for us to be reminded that his death, for us, did not just secure for us salvation from death and hell in the future, but it secured for us the privilege and opportunity to live a life that is pleasing to God today. No matter how old we are, how old we are, where we are at in life, whether we're parents or whether we're young people, uh, maybe even children, God wants you to rejoice in your Savior. And so the question is then, well, what does it mean to rejoice? And I want to answer that question here tonight, because we cannot rejoice in Jesus Christ if we are not rejoicing, or or I should say it this way, we cannot rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ as long as we are rejoicing in ourselves. Now, if I asked you here tonight, how many of you are rejoicing in yourself? Nobody's going to raise their hand. First of all, because you don't trust me on that question. And two, because no, none of us do that. No, we don't normally get up and say, rejoice in Seth always. I don't get up in the morning and say, rejoice in Seth always, and again I say rejoice. I don't say that. Okay, that's a Bible verse, and it's not meant for my name to be there. Um, but, but you know what? The reality is all of us, to some degree, do rejoice in ourselves. And Paul makes a point here in chapter 3. He says, you've seen, I've reminded you of what Jesus' mindset was. It was selfless. It was self-sacrifice. He died for you, and he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. But in in the meantime, I don't want you to rejoice in you. Because if you do, you're going to find yourself very very disappointed you need to rejoice in your savior in the person remember this morning in church i i mentioned this to all of you who were in sunday morning service don't just come to the bible looking for a principle or a thought to help you you and i need the person of the bible we need the person we need the person I need to long for the person of the bible you ever long for someone you ever long to be with them come on it hasn't been that long ever long to be with that person long to hear their voice desire them right you know what i'm some of you who are younger maybe understand this, this better it seems i don't know the blank stares are deafening um but there needs to be a longing for a person, and the person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And pauls that's what he's getting at here in this chapter. He's saying, I want you to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Let's look at our passage, verse, uh, chapter 3. Look at me beginning in verse 1, and uh, we'll, we'll read down through verse number 9. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, kurios, supreme authority, to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, it's not irking me, Paul says, to write the same things again to you. But for you, it is safe. You need to know these things. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, which means mutilation. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence, he says, in the flesh. And verse 3, is kind of the summary of what we're going to talk about here this evening. He says... In verse 3, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, rejoice in Christ and don't rejoice in you. Have confidence in Jesus Christ, but don't have confidence in you. That's what he's saying in verse 3, verse verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Some of you might be tempted to be confident in you, Paul says, you might be tempted to do that, but if we were to compare who should be confident in themselves, if we were to compare our lives, I would come out on top. But still, don't be confident in you, or I shouldn't be confident in me. Verse 5, circumcised, he goes on to say all the things that he's participated in. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, he's talking about himself now. Persecuting the church, he was very zealous. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So that's all the things that Paul has done. Quite a list. Not that impressive to us, because we're not that familiar with it, probably. But in those days, in Paul's society, that was an impressive, jaw-dropping, wow list. What a guy. You're somebody. And Paul's saying, you know what? If we're going to rejoice in ourselves, then I'd be the guy to rejoice in me. If anybody's going to rejoice in themselves, it should be me, Paul's saying. But he's saying, but we're not to rejoice in ourselves. You, church, need to rejoice in Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, what I used to brag on, what I used to take pride in, those I counted loss. For Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, that I may gain him, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Let's pray, and then I want to just look at a few thoughts in this, just really two thoughts in this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, tonight as we are reminded of your gift to us, eternal life through your Son, purchased by his blood and his sacrifice in a bloody death becoming our sin so that we could have his righteousness. And so, Father, we come to you tonight with thankful hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to connect the death and burial and resurrection of our Savior to our everyday lives. And because He came and died, we we can and we must rejoice in Him for our every moment of every day. Lord, there are many in this room who I think are very self-dependent, a hard-working people, but yet, Father, who who many of us may be struggling because we are rejoicing in us and not in you. So, Father, help us, I pray. Teach us by your word for your glory. May we rejoice in Christ, I ask. In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. So, we cannot rejoice in Christ if we are rejoicing in us. I can't rejoice in me and rejoice in Jesus at the same time. I can hope in me or I can hope in Jesus, but I can't hope in both at the same time. We can't love Christ when we're in love with ourselves. We can't serve ourselves and serve Christ at the same time. We can't trust in Christ when we are trusting ourselves. We can't be satisfied with Christ while we're trying to satisfy ourselves. We can't do it. We can't rejoice in Christ when we're rejoicing in ourselves. And so this rejoicing in the Holy Spirit or in Christ is a deep confidence in God's plan for our future. This rejoicing in Christ is a deep confidence in God's plan for the future. Now I'm asking you, are you rejoicing in Christ? Is your do you find your spirit and your soul in tremendous turmoil and anxiety? Do you find yourself incredibly frustrated. You find yourself angry. Now, I suppose anger has a place in certain applications, but oftentimes it comes as a sin, wicked sin of our flesh. And it's because we're not rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this rejoicing is a deep confidence in God's plan for our future that's built on a trust for the, in the Lord. And the believer who is rejoicing understands that his life is in God's hands. I'll say that again. The believer who is rejoicing understands that his life is in God's hands. That God's working all things together for our good and for, and for his glory. Having predestinated us to something. And he's working these things out. The the believer who's rejoicing understands that his life is in God's hand, his life is in Christ's control, and that everything is well. The hymn writer, uh, Horatio Spafford, I'll read a portion of a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Do anybody know what Horatio Spafford's, um, how he made his livelihood? Anybody know? He was a hymn writer, so what does that mean about him? He must have been a pastor, right? No. He was a lawyer, and he was a businessman. He owned property in Chicago, and he was quite successful. And uh, he wanted to take some time and take his family away to Europe. In 1873, he sent his wife and, I believe, his four daughters ahead of them. And, of course, in those days, they didn't fly in a plane. They were on a ship. And uh, he sent his daughters, his four daughters, his wife ahead ahead of him, and he was going to follow them. And the ship was the ship sank; all four of his daughters perished. And his wife telegrammed him, him and uh, I think it was simply saved alone. Or um, he got on a ship to make his way to meet his wife, knowing his four daughters were dead. Think about this now. He was a successful man with his beloved as his wife, four daughters going to Europe, Um, homes and properties in Chicago, a lawyer. Would you say he was successful? I don't know all the details of his life, but it would appear that though he was successful, things were going his way, and all of a sudden his four daughters are dead. He's going to meet his wife in Europe, and uh, he wanted to know when they were coming near the area where the shipwreck had happened, where his four daughters had perished, And when they got to that area, he was told, as the story is told, and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know where you're at tonight, but can you say that? It is well with my soul. Whatever it is that God's brought into my life, it is well with my soul. I'm rejoicing the Lord. I know I have this deep assurance in the depth of my heart. It's not that I always feel like frolicking and skipping along through life with a big cheesy grin on my face. I'm not talking about pretending. You know, Somebody asks you, how are you doing? And you'd say, I'm doing great and you're lying. I'm not saying to do that. You know, but what I am saying is in the depth of your soul, you know, and you have an assurance. It's well. It's all okay. Because my Heavenly Father knows me, He loves me, and everything is in His hand. It's going to be okay. He goes on to say, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He knows and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And then the final verse says this, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And many of us would say amen to that. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Can, can you say that? You know, I, I pondered that, uh, that historical event, and I was thinking about it this afternoon, and I was just wondering, I wonder how I would handle a trial like that? Hmm. How do you handle the trials of the life of your life where you're at? Some of, the tri- some of our trials pale in comparison to the trials of Horatio Spafford. Many of the trials of our lives, some of them are very, very serious, but many of the trials of our lives pale to, the, to those who are recorded for us in the Bible who yet persevered by faith. Is it well with your soul? No matter what's around me, no matter what's going on, there's a, there's a rejoicing, there's a hoping, there's an assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you rejoicing in yourself? Because if you are, you're going to come apart. If you rejoice in yourself, you're going to come apart. You don't have what it takes. It's no different than salvation from death and hell. Can a person save himself from death and hell by his own works, by his own intestinal fortitude, by his own disciplines, by his mental capacity or his uh, stick-to-itiveness? Can a man save his life from death and hell by any of those things? No. And many of us who have been saved by the grace of God through faith, by Trusting in Christ, now having been saved from death and hell, try to live this life as if Christ is not a part of our lives at all, like he doesn't care, like he's not available, like he can't. And so, in a sense, we would never say it this way, but in a sense, we are rejoicing in ourselves. And as your pastor, I'm warning you, don't do that. Don't rejoice in yourself. Don't hope in yourself. So, are you rejoicing in yourself or are you rejoicing in the Lord? To rejoice in Christ is to have no confidence in the flesh. I'm not making that up. That's what we find in verse number 3. To rejoice in Christ means I'm going to have no confidence in my wicked, godless flesh. Look at verse number 3 of chapter 3. He says, "...for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit." and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He says it. Rejoice in Christ. Have no confidence in the flesh. Do you have confidence in your flesh? Are you self-confident? I know in our society we like to say it's, oh, there's a self-made man right there. I'm telling you, he's something else. What an incredible intellect he's got and hard work and discipline and he's an organizer and he's a delegator and he leads by, you know, he's just like awesome. What a guy. How much confidence are you putting in in you to make it through life, to be successful? He says, have no confidence in the flesh. In a sense, Paul is pleading with the church at Philippi to stop being confident in them, to stop rejoicing in themselves and to rejoice in Christ Jesus, rejoicing in Christ. Rejoicing in Christ is what he's saying. Don't have confidence in the flesh. And again, I say we cannot rejoice in Christ when we are rejoicing in ourselves. We cannot trust in Jesus when we are trusting in ourselves. Now, I want to look at verse 4, and I want to draw your attention to these verses. There's a lot here we don't understand. We're not very familiar with it. But I want to draw your attention to Paul's look-how-great-I-am list. Okay? And I suppose every one of us, to some degree, have a look-how-great-I-am list. And we'll talk about ours in just a moment. But Paul had a look-how-great-I-am list. And at the point when Paul writes this down, he wasn't bragging. Okay? He wasn't bragging at all, very humble. And he actually is going to list all the things that he used to take great pride in. And he's going to say, I count it as nothing. All of this, that I used to take, that, that was my identity, that I took such pride in, I don't rejoice in any of that. I count it as worthless. Okay. But there, would, there had been a time in Paul's life where he had a look-how-great-I-am list. Let's, let's look at it. What, what was it? Um, well, look at verse number 4, and he says this, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, I could be rejoicing in me, if any, man other, if any other man thinketh that he ha, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And here comes his list in verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I want to I give you a little understanding of these things. When he says circumcised the eighth day, it was a big deal to the Judaizers. And the eighth day stressed something that we don't, aren't familiar with. But at the eighth, being circumcised the eighth day stressed that Paul wasn't a proselyte. He hadn't been welcomed into Judaism. He wasn't an Ishmaelite. He was a pure-blooded Jew. It was something to be proud of for him at, the, at, at, at a point in, the, in his life prior to his salvation. And then he goes on to say, of the stock of Israel. In other words, it describes Paul's heritage. Both of his parents were Jews, truly born into Judaism. They were Hebrews. Not they weren't like some of the people who had been won over to judaism and paul in other words could trace his heritage all the way back to abraham he was a true member of the covenant people of god and he was proud of that he had been and then he says of the tribe of benjamin now this tribe had a very special place of honor and was viewed with great esteem within israel the tribe of benjamin remained loyal to the house of david even when others did not He says later on in verse 5, in Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, Paul had been raised in Tarsus. You remember that. He'd been raised in Greek culture under Roman authority, but Hebrew was Paul's native tongue, and he didn't adopt the Greek customs. He thoroughly knew and practiced the language and customs of the Hebrews, the people of God. He was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents, and he took great pride in that. He had. Um... Those were the four things that he was born into, his look how great I am list. Are there, anything, is there any areas of your life that you were kind of born into that you took pride in? And you, weren't a, you, weren't, you never did those things. Your family didn't do those things. And you did these things. You know, we, I think we all have some of those things. They're probably not at the forefront of our mind. Paul's look how great I am list also included three things he had chosen to do. Look at verse number five, the latter part. He says, as touching the law a Pharisee. So Paul was a Pharisee. And in regard to the law as a Pharisee, he was a member of the strictest sect among his people. He was a conservative Pharisee. He took great pride in that. In addition to the law of Moses, the Pharisees added their own laws and regulations. And in time, even what the Pharisees would add to God's law began to be interpreted as being equal with the law of Moses. So that was something to attain to. If you could actually come up with laws that would be implemented, it was something to be proud of. And Paul had been a part of this. He goes on in verse number 6 concerning zeal. He says, you want to talk about zeal being zealous and having passion? He says, I persecuted the church. I remember this was before, this was, he was remembering before he was saved, and for the Jewish religion and before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus zealously persecuted the church. He goes on in verse number 6, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, when I was, when I was living for that, in my flesh, I excelled in keeping the law. And in Paul's eyes, and the eyes of those who knew Saul... Best, he was faultless. Now it's interesting to me. If you were to say that about yourself, or I would have said about myself, you'd say, "Yeah, right." The Holy Spirit allowed Saul to write this down. He directed Paul to write down this word: faultless, blameless. Oh, now he had sinned. It was not saying that he wasn't. He wasn't. He was perfect, but he would bring the required sacrifice in obedience to the ceremonial law and. And Saul would be pronounced clean, and, he, and, he, and he, he would go on with his life, continuing to believe that his good works would outweigh his bad. This, What we're seeing here at verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, this is Paul's look-how-great-I-am list. Paul took a lot of pride in what he could do. Now, he's talking to this church, remember, the church at Philippi, and he's saying, don't rejoice in you. This is not about look-how-great-you-are list. And tonight... As we gather around the elements, we partake of what, and we're reminded of the sacrifice our Savior made for us, we ought to be reminded, too, that we ought not be rejoicing in our, look how great I am, list. Look how much I give. Look how faithful I am. Look look at the things I don't do. Look at all the things I do. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not what following Christ is about. Isn't that what he's after in chapter 2? Let this mind be in you. This is how you need to think. Selfless, sacrificial. Chapter 3 is making application. Don't rejoice in you. Don't be confident in you. Don't hope in you. Don't trust in you. You're going to be sorely disappointed. And sometimes, as we go through this life, we are. And the problem is never our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not because he's inadequate. That's not the problem. Have you ever found yourself there, though, at times in your life where it's kind of hard? Maybe you started to rejoice in yourself and hope in yourself and trust in you, and, and, you know, things are going along really well, and all of a sudden, you know, things aren't going so well all of a sudden. And Things are really rough, and, and now all of a sudden, where do we look? Um, I can remember uh, years ago, playing with one of my children and I don't know somehow we were wrestling or something and I think I bumped their head or they bumped their head on me or whatever and whatever it was they they looked up at me like you you betrayed me daddy and they, they couldn't talk they were just a little guy it was almost like and I was like I didn't do anything you you did that to yourself and you know what sometimes that's the way it is with us in God we're rejoicing in ourselves we're trusting ourselves we're hoping in ourselves everything's going along we have a reputation and Paul and we won't take much time with this anymore, but Paul, as he goes down this list, he was a somebody, as Saul of Tarsus. He was a somebody. People would have been in awe of him. He was an impressive individual, but he, this was his look-what-I-have-done list. And the look-what-I-have-done list has no place in following the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice tonight in our salvation. We can call it that because God has given his salvation to us. It's not about our list. Not becoming a believer, it wasn't about our list, and it's not about our look-what-I-have-done list as we continue on after we're saved. So, what does your look-how-great-I-am list look like? You know, our list might include... You're a hard worker. You're honest. You don't lie. You have character. You have integrity. You you study the Bible. You're very knowledgeable about what God says. You pray, and you're you're disciplined in that. You're you're disciplined in your praying. You're 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 a generous giver in tithes and offerings. Maybe. Maybe your look-how-great-I-am list includes the vehicles you drive or the house that you live in. Maybe it includes your line of work or how much money you have or what you do for others. Or maybe what you don't do that others do. You see. But a person who is rejoicing in himself is confident in himself. He's depending upon himself to secure the future and that is not something you should lean on. You. Don't lean on you to secure the future. Are you depending upon yourself to ensure that every, everything is going to be okay? I'm not talking about be irresponsible and say God will take care of me. You could sing that hymn while being, not obeying scriptural principles. I'm not saying to do that. But throughout this passage, Paul's using accounting terms. And in a very real sense, Paul is saying that his former valuation of his life was mistaken. He's saying, all the things I used to take such pride in, I used to, I used to find my identity and I used to look at what I could do as my salvation. He says, now my valuation has changed. He says, I was mistaken. Do you, do you remember uh, the greater and less than signs in early elementary? Do, do any of you remember that? Okay, some of you do, yes. The Harney boys, you learn those well. Yes, okay, others. Any adults remember that? William, I see your hand. You know all about greater and less than. Well, you know, they were always so confusing for me. I could never remember which way they were supposed to go. What is it? Eating the big thing. Their mouth is open if it's greater than. But which way does it face if it's eating? It may be eating. All right, all right, all right. It's just so difficult. Anyway. Greater than and less than. That may stick with me. No more, no more information about greater and less than. I can only handle one thing. <laughs> greater and less than. You know, some of us, we need to be able to apply the greater and less than sign to those things that are of greater importance and of lesser importance in our lives. What has more value and what is lesser value? You know, there are, there are people who rejoice in themselves and not in Christ. Greater than or less than? Me, greater than or less than? Christ, greater than or less than? I will always come out on the less than side of the equation. And so will you. In your flesh, it will always come out on the less than. It's never sufficient. The flesh is never sufficient to do righteousness, to please God. It's never sufficient to overcome the trials and tests of this life. It's never sufficient to even serve God and please God. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from death and hell to come, to redeem us, to make us his, and to give us his spirit to live through us that we might please God. Greater than. He is greater than. Greater than, and you fill in the blank. Greater than the trial. Greater than the loss. Greater than the hurt. Greater than the sorrow. Greater than the opposition. Greater than the obstacle. He is greater than. You, you know, for those who have never received Christ as their personal Savior, you need him. You, need, you desperately need him. He's the person of this book. He is God who came in human flesh and died and took the sins of the whole world upon his body and he suffered... He was beaten. He was rejected. He willfully gave up his own life as a sacrifice for the salvation, not only of our salvation in this room, but for the salvation of all of mankind, for who, whosoever will believe upon him. And, and in just a few minutes, as the deacons bring the elements to you, they'll bring the bread, the unleavened bread first, and then they'll bring the grape juice second. And the unleavened bread represents the body of our Savior that was broken as he was beaten for us, and he suffered tremendously for us. And the, the, the juice, uh, grape juice represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of that blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And tonight, if you're a guest, you're welcome to participate with us if you, if you are in agreement with us that your salvation it was only purchased by the blood of and the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're welcome to participate with us. But you'll notice that many of us will participate and partake of the bread and the juice tonight. And we partake partake because Christ has commanded us to partake. We partake as a testimony um, that we believe that without his body being broken and without his blood being shed, that we would not be saved. And only by his body being broken and only by his blood being shed are we saved. And we are. So I'll close with this. What are you glorying in? What are you glorying in? There are times in my life that I find myself, and I want I want it to become my character that most of the time, the great majority of the time, Seth Ferguson rejoices in the Lord Jesus Christ. That on a daily basis I am hoping in Christ. I am trusting him. I am finding my satisfaction in him, no matter what the surrounding circumstances may be of my life. I'm 40 now. I hope when I'm 50 I'll be more characterized by that than I am now. But I will tell you that it's far too often in my life that I find myself hoping in me. too often in my life, I find myself trying to find satisfaction in me. Trusting in me. In my intellect. In my work ethic. In my discipline. And not in the one who saved me from death and hell. Paul says to this church, this is my look how great I am list. And it's worthless. It's worthless. He says, I count it but done. It's worthless. It. Don't rejoice in you. Don't be confident in your flesh. Rejoice in your Savior. He saved you from death and hell. Allow him to be your Savior through life until he takes you to that shore. Let's take our hymn.